So I noticed some of you looking a little confused that Broderick kept going when your gospel ended. We had a little bit of a typo. Ten verses were left out of your leaflet, so y'all better pay attention to me. And I hope you were listening to Broderick. I learned early to have a deep respect for historians. Those folks who through their study of history also gain a deep understanding of societal patterns, psychology, religion, cultural influences and trends in the arts. Those who can see how things are connected across time and geography. I also learned this early because my father was an historian by education, profession, and hobby. One of my most enduring images of my dad is him sitting in the living room with a book open on his lap. He was a voracious reader. And the historian's breadth of knowledge, particularly my dad's, was borne out every time we played Trivial Pursuit. My mom and I played as a team against my dad. And the rules of the game dictate that the opposing team picks a single question for the person in that beautiful hub in the middle to answer, to win. Well, my dad wasn't required to answer just one question. He had to answer the whole card. Every single category. And he won often. So. I was interested to hear a story on NPR's Consider This last month. It was one of their long stories with a really deep dive. And the topic was moral panic. And moral panic throughout history. The story was trying to contextualize the rise of certain conspiracy theories over the past few years. How do they fit into a larger historical pattern and narrative? Experts agree that there is a rise in these conspiracy theories, fanciful at best, fanatical at worst, at society's inflection points. Moral panic and wild stories take hold at moments of cultural upheaval. They interviewed an historian and professor, Mary DeYoung, and she has written extensively about this phenomenon. And one of her specific areas was very familiar to me, and I'm looking at people who look like they may have as many wrinkles and gray hair as I do in front of me. And by the way, it's lovely to see you all, <laughs> to actually be preaching to faces, bodies, oh, my heart. Maybe you also remember the satanic panic in the 1980s. There was a major cultural shift in the 1980s. More women than ever were working outside the home. Extended families who used to all live in the same town were living farther and farther apart because of jobs. Childcare was unprepared for this change in our system, and so it was very limited. There was a brewing 
social conflict over the very nature of family. Family values became a buzzword. And wild tales and conspiracy theories about the safety of daycare centers were the front page headlines across the country. Bizarrely, bizarrely, the threats to our cultural fabric were said to be satanic. A major, major company had to change their logo after accusations of having made a deal with the devil for prosperity. And there was a whole genre of novels that were on the bestseller list based on the idea of legions of demonic forces roaming the earth. Indeed, there was a satanic panic. DeYoung says that throughout history, this moral panic unites a certain type of people. It gives them a sense of purpose when their neatly controlled world is upended. And let's face it, this is sensational, headline-grabbing stuff. These stories were repeated again and again and again until they appeared to be true. These patterns, according to historians, are as old as time. Today, the 1980s, the 1950s, all the way back to Europe in the 1100s, and as far back as our gospel reading from Mark today. On this second Sunday after Pentecost, after two plus months with John, we are abruptly thrown back into Mark. Mark and his no-nonsense style and rapid pace punctuated by the word immediately, whether it's there explicitly or implicitly. And today's text employs one of this gospel's signature literary devices. Simply put, a story sandwich. We heard a puzzling tale of crowds, family, and religious leaders. And layered in between is a story that is very scary. The idea that there is actually an unforgivable sin. These are seemingly disparate and unrelated layers, but maybe not. Prior to this, Jesus has been traveling the countryside. He's been healing the sick, he's been driving out demons, feeding people, sharing time and meals with those on the margins, and teaching revolutionary ideas about inclusion and love. And he is followed by ever-growing crowds. This may be the ultimate cultural upheaval. Everything the leaders and Jesus' family thought they knew was being reimagined and reconfigured. Well, Jesus must be doing the work of the devil then, right? Authorities and family wanted to control and define Jesus. The unforgivable sin was the blasphemy of mistaking the Holy Spirit for Satan. 
the unforgivable sin was lacking the faith, the imagination, and witness that Jesus was acting in concert with God and the Holy Spirit in seeing that this radical change in the definition of family and society is nothing less than Trinitarian glory and work. Satanic panic, indeed. I love this passage for so many reasons, all 15 lines of it. It's brilliant literary construction appeals to my past English teacher self. Its timelessness of message appeals to my admiration for the wisdom of historians and what they can see. Its earthiness appeals to my love of irony that this passage falls smack in between Father's Day and Mother's Day in this country and points out the complexity of family systems while redefining what family is. And it brings to mind a painting by my dear friend and folk artist, Bob Short, a depiction of the devil in a business suit with the seven deadly sins listed. And the painting is entitled, Man Created Satan in His Own Image. I love this passage for its ability to tell the whole of the gospel message in 15 short lines. As described by Mita Stamper, a Markan scholar, and she uses a fabulous Latin phrase, in nuke, in a nutshell, briefly stated. She writes, at the center is Jesus' victory for the kingdom of God, the subversion of the strong man by the stronger one, and the freeing of the plunder, God's good creation. We also see in this passage how we are claimed by Jesus as his siblings and parents, no longer on the outside or at a distance, but holders of the secrets of the kingdom, drawn into the inner circle of the mystery and love of God. This, my friends, is the message of the gospel. And it is a message that still sends those who hold tightly to power and desire to oppress. It throws them still into a panic.